Good morning, friends. Scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Thank you. I'll give this back to you. All right. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you, had not once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's really good to be with you. And I bring you greetings from the Sanctuary Covenant Church. We're happy to be uh, friends and connected to you. I think this will make it. <laughs> All right. Well, if it falls, I get a new computer. <laughs> so, yes, I really appreciate uh, Pastor Steve and him for the uh, invitation. Really do appreciate that. And I, I consider it a privilege to be able to share with you and to be here. Uh, let's pray one more time. Lord, we give you thanks for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your great faithfulness toward us. And thank you, Lord, for what we've experienced already. I pray that you would minister to us from the truth of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would indeed be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this now. Let's see. Okay, thanks. I'm open for all kinds of help. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Oh, it feels firmer already. Thanks. So what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, last couple of days, represents to me a reality that has always been part of the fabric of America. So the white nationalism on display is part of what defined America. So the KKK and other white supremacist groups are not aberrations. They're simply an extreme form of what lots of people in the country believe. And to make it even worse, Christianity has, has, has been intertwined with this nationalism. So consequently, white Christians have long enjoyed a certain social hegemony. It was popular to hear people refer to the USA as a Christian nation, and people still do. I mean, there's a lot more I could say about this and just don't have the time, but certainly that notion of Christian hegemony, that the superiority, this seemed to be a big factor in the last presidential election. What I want to do is try to work from First Peter and, and, and look at a way forward, perhaps. And I believe that the way forward for the people of God in our context is to learn from those who have been oppressed. Not just listen to the voice of the oppressed, but also learn from that voice. We just heard read for us that Peter called his people there, that he was writing this letter to chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation. He takes those terms from ancient Israel and he applies them to these followers of Jesus who were being harassed, slandered, and persecuted by the broader society. Yet Peter says that these people, these marginalized people, are the people of God who have received mercy from God. They were once nobodies, but now they're somebodies. And even though they had been oppressed and are being oppressed, these people will bring God glory. 
This is the way it works with the Lord. He takes those who are weak in the world's eyes to demonstrate his power. And he takes what's foolish to demonstrate his wisdom. This is how God works. So I'm saying that we do not always see the way of Jesus in the people who have a dominant role in society. I want to say that again. We don't always see the way of Jesus in people who have a dominant role in society. But for some crazy reason, we keep turning in that direction. We have to turn our heads and look in a different direction. We often see the way of Jesus in those on the margins, minorities, immigrants, women, even children. Look in that direction to discern the way of Jesus. As I say that, it sounds simple, sounds straightforward, but it goes against the way of our world. It will take some retraining for Christians to learn their lessons from those who are not part of the dominant culture. But if we're willing to be retrained, God will breathe a fresh wind of his spirit into this Christian community, and we will demonstrate to the world what's truly countercultural and transformational in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So yes, as mentioned, I wrote a commentary on 1 Peter, so Pastor Steve was gracious to... Let me uh, share some things from 1 Peter. There's a lot I can say, but, but there's some things I think that are relevant for our time right now. We're just going to touch on three, three things that Peter's readers are teaching us from how they were encouraged to live. One is to live as exiles. Secondly, to faithfully persevere. And thirdly, to witness through pressure. So live as exiles, faithfully persevere, and witness through pressure. Live as exiles. Here in chapter 2, you heard it read, Peter commands his people to live as foreigners and aliens. That's directly in opposition to nationalism. Foreigners and aliens, by definition, live outside the mainstream. Peter does not advocate treason. It's actually a little later in that passage, he'll say, you know, honor the the emperor, and to, you know, to, to act right in society. The people of God, however, are not people at home in this world system. We're not at home in this world system. If we were to look backwards for just a little bit, I mean, if we were to look earlier in the letter, you would see at the beginning, Peter addresses his letter to the exiles in the dispersion, in the diaspora. And it might be that some of Peter's readers were literally aliens in Asia Minor, possibly due to forced migration, where, where they, uh, they were forced to be part of the colonization that Rome was doing. So Peter's readers, like immigrants throughout time, are disconnected from the dominant culture. In 1 Peter, the Christian believers are alienated from a hostile society whose values are at odds with the teachings of Jesus. So they're a faithful minority. Diaspora is not a strange notion, and not to African Americans. Several years ago, I used to subscribe to Christianity Today when it was a magazine. Remember what those were? Magazines? <laughs> and, um, but I got annoyed with it, and I stopped my subscription for a while. But that's, that's part of a whole other story I could share with you about my, my uh, love-hate with evangelicalism. But that's... that's <laughs> I won't go down that road right now, but they used to have, they used to have these ads for, for your family crest. So, yeah, of course, the ad bothered me on a lot of levels, because I understand that those who provided the service knew there would be a market among evangelicals for such a thing, because evangelicals were largely white and European. Of course, it's frustrating for me. 
I mean, I have this last name of Edwards. It's an English name. I have no idea how I got it. No idea. I can't accurately trace my roots to any country in Africa. It'll have to suffice to name an entire continent. I'm African-American. I did Ancestry.com, you know, recently because I just wanted that for my kids. So, so I'm like 79% from somewhere in Africa, which no surprise. But I'm 12% or 13% Scandinavian. Scandinavian. <laughs> I'm like, and I end up in the cub. I'm like... The sweetest covenant. And before that, I was ordained in the Evangelical Free Church. Norwegians. <laughs> Maybe I should be a Calvinist after all. Just ended up just... But I don't know. I have no idea. And so we are people dispersed from the homeland. And our history in the United States is not a glamorous one. And immigrants, even in our time, as well as we who are the offspring of slaves... We know this alienation that, I, that Peter is talking about. It stems from a lack of familiarity with the new setting and the xenophobia that, 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 that one is confronted with in that new setting. And I'm continually amazed at the endurance of my forebears, many of whom became Christians despite the evils of slavery, as well as American Christianity's ambiguous attitude towards slavery. So additionally, I'm motivated and I'm encouraged when I recall that our Lord Jesus was a voice from the margins, and he shows that that place can be a place of honor. Because Jesus himself experienced life on the margins, it's fair to say that African-American Christians may be in a unique position to model the way of Jesus. When I was back in seminary, I had a white friend who was at least honest in saying that he couldn't see himself sitting under a, a, a black pastor. And I've known many white Christians who are happy to have African-Americans to come and sing or preach to entertain them, but would not let an African-American lead them. I teach seminary courses. I, I've taught adjunct for years. And I know that in seminary, you get taught theology. That really means white European theology. We don't put adjectives on it. It's theology. But then we have to say African-American theology or womenist theology or Latin American theology. The theological perspectives formed by the oppressed are typically seen as aberrant, or even substandard, they're the electives, right? not the required course. Right? But Peter is showing us that diaspora people, foreigners, aliens, are in the best position to demonstrate the way of Jesus. We must learn to live as aliens in the world, like these folks. We must learn that this world, as it presently exists, is not our real home. We are a diaspora people, spread out in the world not to adapt to its godless ways, but to love the world the way Jesus loves it. Oppressed people teach us to live as exiles. Exiles often face alienation and other forms of suffering. Oppressed believers teach us faithful perseverance. So that's my next point, to faithfully persevere even through suffering. Now, Peter's readers suffered in some ways. We, you could see that throughout. In fact, at the very beginning, of the letter back in chapter one, he talks about the trials that they're facing. I'll just read real quickly for you. In 1 Peter chapter one, verses six and seven, he says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
So these believers are facing what he calls fiery trials. Yet they rejoiced even in the face of suffering. <clears throat> they persevered in the faith. Slaves who were brought from Africa to what would become the United States were thrust into an environment that was heavily influenced by Christianity, no doubt. Negro spirituals were birthed as slaves came to connect their story to the biblical story. I have a friend or acquaintance who's a theologian, African-American brother, Arthur Sutherland. He's written some about this. He says, the spirituals emerged not just because of slavery, but because the slaves were working people surrounded by the preaching and teaching of the gospel. The creators of the spirituals knew the biblical narratives, and they knew the importance of ancestors in African religion. Daniel, Moses, Jacob became not just figures caught in the pages of the past, but living and active participants, even protectors in the present who could be appealed to for survival. So the spirituals, they grew out of the dynamic tension of living with faith in a God who promises deliverance while simultaneously experiencing the slave master's whip. And although the spirituals were fundamentally work songs that provided some measure of relief from backbreaking labor, they also served to build some measure of community. The spirituals helped the slaves to affirm that they were not defined by their work. Their identity was rooted in a spiritual reality that transcended their present circumstances. I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus to walk with me all along my pilgrim journey. I want Jesus to walk with me. There's many examples of spirituals that connect the slave's work and life to the life of the scriptures. And I think plenty of Christians in the dominant culture can learn that their lives need not be defined by their work. African-American slaves teach us that there's a spiritual realm that although typically unseen is nevertheless real, and we, are, and we are meant to relate to the God of the universe, not to the God of work, the God of sex, the God of money, or any other idol. Oppressed people, oppressed people are teaching us that we can, as Peter puts it, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. And we can live such good lives among unbelievers that although they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds. Presently, African-Americans, when it comes to income, education, health, other critical measures, still worse off than the dominant culture. So some in our society will, will blame African-Americans entirely for the disparity. But rational people know better. We have a, a legacy of persevering through suffering. Even though some people get annoyed when we say it, black lives matter to God even when it doesn't feel like it on earth. And with so many cases of violent altercations between police and black people making the news, I wonder how long we have to keep demonstrating to the world that we're able to persevere through suffering. It's gotten to the point that when someone can come into an African-American church for, you know, during the Bible study, be warmly received, then start shooting, the black people are expected to start granting forgiveness. I was in a meeting of Christians discussing race. I feel like I've been in hundreds of those throughout my lifetime. Probably have. And this one white guy commented that one contribution of African-American Christianity is our ability to forgive. I wish it didn't have to be that that was the main lesson that we're always teaching. 
Because when people talk about being on the margins, and I hear white people talk about it, the Christians, they get upset when somebody says happy holidays. Come on, people. And don't say Merry Christmas. We're bringing Christmas back. They have no idea what it means to suffer. I have four adult children. Susan, I have four adult children. My, my adult children would say things much more strongly than I'm saying today. But they, um, they, they point out to me how extreme sports are popular among young white men because they go looking for things to provoke fear. Otherwise, they have nothing to fear. Minorities have had to learn the way of faithful perseverance through all sorts of suffering. But not only have African-Americans and other minority groups just demonstrated faithful, faithful perseverance, they witnessed for Jesus in the process. That's to say they didn't just hold on for survival. They pointed to Jesus along the way. And Peter is urging his suffering readers to live impeccable lives. He wants them to live like Jesus right in the midst of their suffering. No selfishness, no disrespect for others, no retaliation. Upright behavior, particularly while suffering, this witnesses powerfully for Christ. And this is, this, is a, this is a tough place for us because there's many ways we would love to, to retaliate. And the way of Christ is not the way of retaliation. Here's my last point. We witness through pressure. Wordless witness can be powerful. That's to say how we act communicates more than what we say. We know this. Actions speak louder than words. When I was a young man in college involved in campus ministry, I learned where many others have learned, a confrontational form of evangelism. I was supposed to stop a stranger, get them into conversation, share a booklet with them, get them to pray a prayer at the end of the booklet. And, and if they were to ask questions along the way, I was even taught to like push the question off because we were told that's just a smoke screen. They don't want to talk about their sin. So, you know, press on and get through the booklet. And in addition to that style of evangelism, I had grown up in a context that we passed out tracts all the time because we, you know, we thought information was what people needed. So we would pass out. I remember one time I was standing at the subway stop. I'm from New York originally. And we were standing at the subway. I was with a friend of mine who convinced me to do this. But he actually didn't have to convince much. I thought it was supposed to be what we, you know, what we were supposed to do. So we're passing out all these tracks at the subway. And eventually a subway guy comes up from, from you know, downstairs. And he's angry. I mean, he's livid. Oh, that's where, that's where this is coming from. All these tracks were on the ground, down, down on the floor. Well, ground. We call everything the floor in New York. But <clears throat> so I felt horrible. So I go down there and I see, you know, a sea of these tracks that we've been handing out. And I start picking them up. And then the guy felt like, oh, he came up. Oh, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. I felt, yeah, I do have to do that. I mean, I was feeling kind of embarrassed that what we thought doing all this great work and all these people doing were taking them and probably like Minnesotans being very polite. Thank you. And throw it away. <laughs> you know, <it's> like <laughs> and then I recall how in our society we thought we were doing such great work because at football games people held up references, not actual verses, but references, assuming that everybody knew what a name, a number, a colon, and another number would mean. EPH2 colon 8. Everybody knows what that means, right? That was our witnessing. EPH2 colon 8 during a field goal. John 3 colon 1 6 during a field goal. And everybody's supposed to know what that means. And I, at my own church, I've disappointed people because I don't always give an emotional altar call at the end of the message because they assume most people come to faith in a church building, in a worship service. It's the 21st century. People are not largely coming to faith because we stand on a corner with signs and a megaphone. They're not largely coming to faith because we have clever arguments or 
colorful gospel tracks. People come to faith when they see how we act. Is it even worth it to give my time and energy to what these people are talking about? I was taught that the Confederacy lost the Civil War. Yet the South is full of monuments to the Confederacy. I lived in D.C. for over 17 years. I drove in Northern Virginia quite frequently on Lee Highway, Jefferson Davis Highway. The problem for me isn't that such monuments exist, but that Christians in America are okay with them. The folks who started the protest there in Charlottesville are racist, pure and simple. Yet some will claim that they're Christians. And there are white Christians who will refuse to clearly and without reservation denounce the sin of white supremacy and work toward the better way, the way of Jesus, the way of love. When what we believe causes us to act in the right way, then people will pay attention. You wonder why Christianity is losing significance and relevance in our society? Look at the Christians. We would see even in chapter 3, if we were to spend some time there, we'd see how, how women become awesome examples of giving witness to Christ without words. Right here in 2, 11 to 17 part of what we read, Peter's admonition to his community is this idea that upright behavior, particularly when under pressure, will communicate a positive message to onlookers. It's going to silence the, the, the talk, the ignorant talk of foolish people, he says. We still have ignorant talk of foolish people. What counters that is the way of Christ. The civil rights movement in America illustrates Peter's point of how God's people witness to the world even through suffering. One of the things that made the civil rights movement effective, as we, I think, know, history has said, was the abuse taken by innocent protesters who followed the way of Dr. King, propagating a notion of nonviolent resistance. And although there were some who disagreed with that approach, yes, there was always tension, we look back and note how that philosophy at the heart of the movement drove some of the changes that inched their way through in, in the United States. So Representative John Lewis, in his memoir, Walking with the Wind, he describes the protest in Selma. Now, we've seen the movie since then, but he writes this in his memoir. He wrote years before that movie. He says, ABC television cut into its Sunday night movie with a special bulletin. News anchor Frank Reynolds came on screen to tell viewers of a brutal clash that afternoon between state troopers and black protest marchers in Selma, Alabama. Then they showed 15 minutes of footage of the attack. The American public had already seen so much of that sort of thing. Countless images of beatings and dogs and cursing and hoses. But something about that day in Selma touched a nerve deeper than anything that had come before. People just couldn't believe this was happening, not in America. I hear people still saying that. Women and children being attacked by armed men on horseback. It was impossible to believe, but it happened. And the response from across the nation to what would go down in history as Bloody Sunday was immediate. Now, if we took our time through this short New Testament letter, we'd find a lot more lessons about life on the margins being what helps to transform society. But I'll just end on a personal note. I went back to D.C. a few years just a few years ago, to attend the funeral of my great aunt, Flossie Johnson, a member of her Baptist church for over 65 years. The eulogist was a retired judge who was also a lay preacher. He was 68 years old at that time, giving the eulogy, and my great aunt was his mother's best friend. In fact, he always tells the story of how my great aunt gave him his first real blanket. 
So Judge Williams was telling me stories about my great aunt's life in rural South Carolina, some of which the family didn't even know because she would sit out on the porch and tell him things that she didn't tell some of the family. He told us about a woman born, you know, years before the Great Depression, picked cotton as a child. She did domestic work nearly all of her life. Josie, that would be my grandmother, her older sister. Josie's only child, Loetta, my mother, and Flossie. They made their way from the from South Carolina as part of the Great Migration and moved up to D.C. I remember when the book and the movie The Help came out, I remember calling on Flossie and I said, have you seen the movie The Help? She said, oh, they're trying to get me to see that. She said, Dennis, why do I want to see that? She said, you know every female in your family did domestic work for white people. I mean, she didn't need to relive that. In 1946, Aunt Flossie met a man on a streetcar in D.C., fell in love. They stayed, she stayed married to Clifton Johnson for 65 years until he died in 2011. So my mother and grandmother, they eventually moved on up to New York, and that's where the Edwards part starts to, to come in. But I can only imagine the mess these women had to face, much that I'll never know or understand because they didn't talk about it very much. You know, I was just in, in the Middle East. I mentioned we went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum there. They've redone a lot since the last time I was there in 2000. And, and then we had an expert in the Holocaust, a woman, talk to us. And she was in her 70s. And she said how, you know, that generation didn't want to talk about it. I mean, people who had lived through, they were traumatized. She said it took a long time for us, talking about her generation, to learn what really was going on, what people felt, what they were thinking, what they were experiencing. And I feel like I felt that way with my own relatives who are older. They, they wouldn't always talk about the abuse they faced, the segregation, the humiliation of having to clean up other people's mess, the thankless task of cooking other people's meals, caring for other people's children, then on top of that, having to cook, clean, and care for their own families. What a burden these women carried for years. That's just in my family. But Aunt Flossie had this rare gift of joy, and she lived through this mess and craziness, always had a spot on her table for everyone. She was not only an amazing cook, something everybody talked about, something many of us had experienced, she also had a gift for making people feel at home. And at the funeral, several people were giving that kind of tribute. She had been there for them in times of need. This was awesome to hear, because she lived a life of love, and everyone affirmed it. And despite the racist, sexist, patriarchal world that she had to maneuver in, because of her faith in Jesus... She chose to love. The preacher made it clear that Aunt Flossie lived the golden rule. She would do to others as she would have them do to her. He challenged us to go and do likewise. My great aunt and many people like her are examples of people on the margins who show the way of Jesus despite suffering and alienation. They're not only people to be celebrated, they're people to be emulated. We're supposed to learn. I tell you this story about my great aunt, but my point is not just to say that formerly uneducated people can inspire us or that poor people can be noble. It's much more than that. Throughout my lifetime, I've seen white evangelicals sometimes invite African-Americans, as I mentioned, to lead, to preach. I mean, it was, for years, it was just a handful that seemed to have the imprimatur to come and preach among white people. And it seemed that we black folks were good for entertaining white Christians. Our music was great. We seemed intrigued by our preaching. But I grew sick of that. And what I'm trying to say is that our theologians, our biblical scholars, our apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are people who have been heretofore ignored. We've been taught that only white males do theology and define ministry. But oppressed people aren't here to entertain the dominant culture. 
They do, however, have important lessons to teach if we're ready to listen and learn. And 1 Peter shows us that those who have been oppressed are the very ones who teach us the way of Christ. Now, I don't know if dominant culture Christians are ready to learn from those who have been oppressed, but lessons of faith don't always come from the top down. I think I've been like kind of serious this morning because, <laughs> because you know, normally people would say man or something like that. And I was like, I feel like I stunned you all, but I, I guess, um, but I'm going to say this again. And I'm going to say amen inside myself. But lessons of faith don't always come from the top down. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Read the books of non-white authors. Learn to submit to someone who isn't part of dominant culture. Be willing and ready to receive instruction from those who have been on the margins. Because it's time to start paying attention to those who have been exiles, who persevered by faith, who witnessed while suffering, because those are the people who show us the way of Jesus. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, there's so much that could still be said, so much that we have to reflect upon. But Lord, give us this minute that we at least start to sort through some things. Holy Spirit, have your way.